Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pakulski. As always, we frame this podcast around living your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. For the last 12, 24, maybe even 36 months, I've had an absolute infatuation with brain optimization. It seems as though many people focus on the body or many people focus on the brain. There's this beautiful integration that exists that hopefully you guys are all starting to see and understand at some level right now. And today we're going to interview one of the world authorities on brain optimization. I first came across Dr. Titus Chu on a Dr. Hyman series called Broken Brain. And uh, Dr. Chu is uh, an absolute wealth of information when it comes to things like concussions, gut health, Hashimoto's, um, so many interesting things that are directly contributing to how our brains interact with the environment and how our mind interacts with our brain. So one of my favorite things about this conversation today is he really simplifies it. He really breaks it down and gives us a framework so we can start to look at how to actually optimize our brains. So if someone says to you, hey, I want you to optimize your brain, most people don't really have an idea where to start. Most people will say, well, maybe you should sleep a little bit more. Maybe you should meditate a little bit more. Maybe you should read or, or learn to focus or whatever. Dr. Chu gives us a really simple three-step framework that is really, really helpful in understanding how to approach this stuff and actually get a significant difference in brain health, brain optimization. Um, so you're really going to love this podcast with Dr. Chu. He's recently written a book called Brain Save, which is really focused around brain injuries, concussions, and trauma. Does a really nice job of simplifying it, bringing it down to earth so you can understand, hey, this is what I need to do to regrow my brain, to optimize my brain. And you know, a lot of us are living with these brains that we don't even know are broken. It could be from leaky gut. It can be from stress. It can be from brain trauma. So many things contributing to poor brain function. Even just living in a stressful state or a stressful environment is decreasing the way your brain functions. It's decreasing your brain's ability to think and learn and remember. And all those things are so important to thriving in life. Even emotional regulation is so important and things you can actually change. So I hope by now, after listening to this podcast for some time, many of you guys are aware of this reality that we can change everything in our life, right? It's this concept of a growth mindset, meaning I am not who I am. I am who I want to become. I can change anything. Nothing in my life is fixed. So if you're someone who says, oh, I have a bad memory. Oh, I have a hard time learning. Or, oh, I don't remember what I read. Well, stop with the BS that you tell yourself and start fixing it because there is definitively ways to do that. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And I hope you guys love this conversation with Dr. Titus Chu. Today's podcast is brought to you by Butcher Box, my favorite way to get meat shipped directly to my home. So I just opened my big silver freezer and it's loaded with the best quality meat and chicken and fish. And you guys know I've recently, after my trip to Iceland, I've been eating a lot more fish because after going there and experiencing such amazing fish, I'm actually going to be importing it from Iceland because it's just so good. And I'm getting some from Alaska from my friends out there. Really, really awesome to enjoy great quality meat. So if you're someone who's looking to save time, save money, ButcherBox is hooking you guys up. $20 off your first order and hooking up with some free meat. So free stuff is always awesome. Use the code MI40 when you go over to butcherbox.com right now for your order and $20 off. Hope you guys enjoy the show with Dr. Chadis Chu. And if you do enjoy the show, please share it with at least one person you know that will love this stuff and leave us a review. I want to hear from you. I want to hear if you guys love it, if you hate it. Ashley and I have been getting some great feedback on our Q&As. We're getting some great feedback on our guests. So we're so grateful for you, for your time and your attention. Enjoy the show. Welcome. I'm super grateful for your time. Dr. Chu, you're information that you're giving out to the world right now is absolutely brilliant around how to save our brains. And I think a lot of people out there are fighting that reality where, you know, they are seeing the steady decline of, of brain function, yeah. whether it be slowing thoughts, poor memory. But as I mentioned briefly, my demographic is, you know, doing a lot of the things right. What we're looking at is like, what are those needle movers that you find 
you know, in your years of treating people with brain injury and concussion and anxiety and depression that tend to allow us to progress. So mm-hmm. I'd like you to start just with a kind of a, a brief overview of maybe like a systems approach to the brain, right? So what are the systems that we can influence mm-hmm. and then follow that up if you don't mind with like, well, what do we do to do those to influence those things? Yeah, that's a great question. And yeah, I really, uh, appreciate you inviting me to your your podcast as well and you're doing awesome stuff and anybody studying the brain uh, I'm, I'm super fascinated with so thank you for being here yeah absolutely it's it's an honor so yeah that's a great term you know i just love that term systems you know because in the past people used to think that the brain was separate from the rest of the body you know and with these breakthroughs and understanding specifically systems biology we realize that everything's connected And so there's a lot of research looking at, for example, how digestive imbalances or problems with the microbiome could impact the nervous system or hormonal imbalances like thyroid or cortisol or, you know, testosterone, estrogen, how that impacts the brain. And so that's how I approach it as well from this, you know, systems biological approach. And specifically, what I've come up with, what I call the three pillars of brain health. And the first pillar is your physical brain. And what I mean by that it's the actual physical connections and structures that you know your brain cells communicate with. The fancy term for that is neural networks. So I always look at and see what's happening with a person's neural networks. How well are the neural networks working? Because there's dedicated neural networks that allow a person to focus, that allow a person to you know manifest their dreams and the realities, or allow a person to have core stability and strength and power. So there's very specific neural networks, and that's the first key pillar. And I'll go into more detail about that in a second. The second key pillar of brain health is what I call the chemical brain. And that's referring to the neurochemical milieu, so to speak, the environment that your physical brain exists in. So a great analogy is kind of like if you have a tree and it's got these strong roots, that's like the structure or physical part of it, right? But then just as important to the health of the tree is the soil that the roots are existing in. And so with the chemical brain, Mm -hmm. it's the same thing or the brain itself. Like you can have strong connections and neural networks that are like refined and, you know, fine tuned. But if that physical brain exists in, you know, a neurochemical environment that has inflammation or toxicity or you know, mitochondrial issues, ATP production issues, energy issues, then that brain's not going to be functioning at, you know, all eight cylinders. So the second key pillar is the chemical brain. And finally, the third pillar that's just as important is the emotional brain. And that refers to our mindset, right? And I know you do a lot of work around mindset. You know, it looks at how we deal with stress and our beliefs about ourselves and about the world around us. Do we have empowering beliefs that, you know, create the shifts that we want in our lives or are we stuck with disempowering beliefs? So all three things, the physical, chemical, and emotional brain are critical when it comes to optimizing brain health. And so not even just optimizing, but like in the case of my specialty, I specialize in post-concussion syndrome, you know, healing a person's brain that has been injured or experienced trauma. But the interesting thing, Ben, is the principles are the same as you know, right? It's like if a person has had a head injury and they're not working, their brain's not working up to speed like it used to be, we use the same pillars of brain health to help a person heal as we take like a high performer and let them work at an even higher level in their life. Amazing. Um, I think that gives people a really good framework to start to understand brain optimization, right? I think looking at all the potential levers you can pull, like hey, here's the things that if we pay attention to these really, really clearly can actually make an immediate difference. And, and the one that is particularly interesting to me and seemed to go off into many different areas is this chemical brain situation, right? So we're looking at not only the neurochemistry mm-hmm. and also probably the, as you mentioned, the energy production, maybe there's micronutrient considerations, there's blood brain barrier considerations. How extensively are you looking at the influence of all of those factors in optimizing brain health? Yeah. So the way I approach it, it's completely personalized. So 
from like a theoretical framework standpoint, I look at all those things. But when it comes to like working with a patient or client one-on-one, it's completely personalized. So I'll do an initial intake process. I'll perform a neurological evaluation if it's in person and I'll go deep into their history. And from there, I'll identify which of those areas, first and foremost, is it the physical, chemical, emotional brain that we need to prioritize? And let's say, for example, after the assessment, I found that they've done a lot of like brain training or neural rehab, or they've done emotional work and they've seen therapists, but they're still struggling, then I'm going to dive into the chemical brain. And so from that point, Ways of assessing that, as you probably know, there's blood tests, specialized functional medicine testing we can do to assess what's happening with like the blood-brain barrier. Is the person not healing or optimizing their brain because they have autoimmunity? So I'll look at those things as an example. I'll look at inflammatory markers like high-sensitivity CRP. I'll look at blood glucose levels, hemoglobin A1C, all those things. And in addition, I'll look at more specialized testing if I think it's a HPA axis, like neuroendocrine imbalance, I'll look at cortisol and I'll look at the cortisol awakening response. And if I think it's a hormonal issue, you know, a lot of people, a lot of men, especially who experience depression or low energy or low motivation, it could be related to testosterone levels. So I can look at testosterone and the ratio of testosterone to estrogen. And so those are just some examples of tests we can do to explore how well the chemical brain's working. In addition, one of the biggest tests that I do in my practice that I see a lot, especially with people who have suffered a head injury, are stool tests and or a breath test to assess for the health of the small intestine and the large intestine. Because there's actually research that, you know, not only there is actually published articles out there looking at the connection between traumatic brain injuries causing what we call leaky gut or digestive imbalances. But not only is that in the research, I see that in my practice every single day. As a matter of fact, like I was telling you before, that was part of my you know, journey to get to where I am. I suffered from a concussion many years ago. And because there wasn't too much resources out there, I had to learn how to take control of my own brain health. And in doing so, I pieced together like this whole process and approach that I call the brain save approach. But for me, part of my healing journey, in addition to working on the physical and emotional brain, a big breakthrough was when I identified that I had a bacteria infection in my gut. And so that was one of the reasons why I wasn't healing. And once I identified that through stool testing, I put myself through the protocol that I put countless patients of mine on. And that's when my brain went to the next level. But again, the key is it's it's about personalization. Yeah. So tell me about that. So you mentioned stool and breath testing, and, and I don't think that would even bring on somebody's radar when it comes to kind of assessing their brain function, right? So when you're looking at a breath test, mm-hmm. what is that indicating? That I've got some type of like SIBO response, like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or is it is it just leaky gut? Or, or what exactly is that? And what am I looking for as far as what's coming out of my breath? Something people could tell on their own, or does it have to be a test? Yeah, great question. So specifically with the breath test, One of the breath tests that I do in my practice a lot is the small intestinal bacteria overgrowth test, just like you mentioned. And so we're measuring for levels of hydrogen and methane gas. And if the levels are out of range, like they're higher than normal, that means that that person has dysbiosis or an imbalance or overgrowth of bacteria in their small intestine. And so there is some kind of controversy as to the accuracy of this test. But honestly, in my practice, I see this test come up positive a lot, but most importantly is then we need to correlate it with the symptoms. So many times I can have a sense if a person has small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or dysbiosis in their small intestine just based on their symptoms. So that's why a big part of my evaluation, and that's the thing, when you speak to doctors who really get it and understand it, they'll tell you that 90% of the information they need they can pull from a really good history as long as they understand the physiology, anatomy, and pathophysiology underneath that. But that being said, like I was saying, if you know people out there listening, if they experience things like brain fog or fatigue, that could be due to a lot of different root causes, or they might experience like a long time to recover from a workout, and so their muscles are more sore than 
normal, the recovery time, that could also be due to many root causes. But one common thing I found is a digestive imbalance we call SIBO. And so if on top of the brain fog and fatigue and muscle soreness, you know, long time recovery, they also experience gas and bloating, especially gas that doesn't stink, you know, that could be an indication that they have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Because the reason for that is if a person out there has those symptoms, I describe, you know, fatigue or brain fog and muscle soreness, it could be due to other digestive imbalances. But if they're having, you know, farts that stink, that typically indicates that there's a protein digestive issue, you know, a condition we call hypochlorhygia, which is a bit different than SIBO. Whereas if they're having gas and then the brain fog and that stuff, but the gas doesn't stink, then that could be a clue that they have SIBO. And that's a completely different treatment protocol than the other thing. So again, the key is personalization, but also pattern recognition and understanding the system's biology and how it all connects. Super interesting. Now, within your three pillars, and I probably should know the answer to this one. I think you kind of answered it, but I'd like to go into a little more detail. Do you have a hierarchy of which one you would uh, maybe value the most? Or if not, which one would you treat first? Yeah, great question. So based on my experience and the clients that I work with, the hierarchy is always the physical brain. And the reason why I say that is because a lot of people out there, especially with you know great information that you're putting out there and other thought leaders, you know, and people are really you know sharing this information about nutrition and optimization of health. A lot of people that I work with have already done diets. They've done ketogenic. They've done paleo. They've eliminated the food sensitivity. They've taken supplements. And if there was emotional stuff, they've worked on the stress management piece. They meditate. They have a good lifestyle, but they're still struggling. So based on my experience with the clients and patients I work with, I usually start with the physical brain because they've done a lot of like at least the core foundational stuff. And one of the biggest mistakes I see people make is like, okay, I'm going to make these diet changes. You know, I'm feeling a little better, but it's not you know, I'm not exactly where I need to be with my brain health or my physical health. So I'm just going to further restrict my diet or I'm going to take more supplements. And I find that if that's not moving the needle, most likely it's either that's not the right diet or supplement for you. But if you've already experimented and it's not working, then we need to explore the emotional or physical brain. And like I said, one of the most under-recognized areas when it comes to brain health is the physical brain. Because the actual treatments and therapies and exercises, the actual actions that people take in the physical brain world look very different than things that we do for the chemical and emotional brain. As an example, if I identify that a priority for a person is the chemical brain, like if they haven't done any lab testing or changed their diet or taken supplements, then when we start there, you know, those types of interventions will look at things like you know, neurotropics or supplements or diet changes, right, to shift the neurochemical milieu. But like I was saying, for the physical brain, the actual interventions are really unique because the brain is unique. Not only does it respond to and require nutrition, like in the sense of nutrients and everything we discussed, it also needs stimulation. It's just like, you know, I know your whole thing is like training the body. Just like when you're training the body, you can talk to a person and teach them about nutrition and they can go out and change their diet and take supplements, but unless they go and do the actual work of resistance training and functional training, they're not going to make a dent in the changes in their muscles, right? Of course, absolutely. Yeah, you can optimize a person's ability to like strengthen and you know prepare them for the actual training and the resistance and all that. But when it actually comes to making the changes, you need to actually do that. And so it's the same thing with the brain. You know, we can look at diet and nutrition, even lifestyle and stress management to optimize and prime the brain. But until we actually go in and make the specific changes, like we can actually target the neural networks with very specific therapies, treatments, and or exercises. And so a big part of what I focus on, you know, at the first is the physical brain. 
And so different types of things that we, you know, use to actually optimize that are sensory-based therapies. So I use things like light or sound or smell, taste, touch, vibration or proprioceptive training or balance training, vestibular rehab, because all these sensory therapies target very specific neural networks that are then, again, dedicated to core functions. That's amazing. And I'm so glad you went down that path because that's such an area of interest of mine is this idea of learning and learning doesn't just have to be like, Hey, I'm sitting down to read a book, right? It's maybe I'm learning a skill. Maybe I'm exposing myself to music or anything, right? And this concept of neural based therapies. um, Do you have any, you know, one to three modalities you highly recommend that people are, who are looking to optimize brain function and really looking to become high achievers focus on? And obviously maybe it's a very individual thing, but what have you seen the greatest uh, needle Mm -hmm. as the greatest needle movers? Yeah, your great question. Again, like you said, just to preface this, you know, this next conversation and discussion, it all has to be personalized. But yeah, like the top three needle movers I see are number one, personalized eye exercises and eye movement therapies. Like because, eye stuff? Yeah, exactly. Like gaze stabilization, yep. psychotic retraining, and it all, you know, like in coupled with vestibular and spin therapies, things like that. Those are powerful ways of resetting like multiple neural networks like the saccades as you probably know activate the frontal eye fields as well as the brainstem superior colliculus as well as the lower parts of the brainstem and the cerebellum so it's like with one eye movement you activate multiple neural networks whereas if you do a more Mm -hmm. pursuit type of eye movement where you're like eye tracking that activates a completely different other neural network you know, so I find that eye movement therapies, once a person is trained, right, just like in, you know, when you're training the body physically, you have to go through like a foundational step. Like if a person doesn't have good core stability, that's where you start, right? And so that's the same thing with me. I always start at the foundational levels of the nervous system. I look at what's happening in the brainstem with the cerebellum, as well as the stibular system. I start there. And once those foundations are set, in place. And there's objective ways of measuring that to improve core stability or balance or reaction time. Then I start to do the more fine tuning of the higher centers of the nervous system, like the prefrontal cortex and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the orbital frontal cortex and the parietal lobe and all these different regions that, you know, once we identify the weak link in an individual, we can prescribe very, very, very specific therapies and even at-home exercises that can trigger that neuroplastic response, but specific to the region that needs it, right? Just like if you're going to train the bicep, you can do it functionally, but if you want to get specific, there's very specific exercise you do to bulk those muscles up. Same thing goes for like the frontal lobe, which deals with focus and, you know, foresight as well as visualization and manifesting dreams in reality, right? Or like the cerebellum, which deals with core stability and balance, but also actually emotional regulation and autonomic function, believe it or not. And so, you know, through this whole evaluative process, what I call root cause neurology, we can identify what those weak links are and then prescribe you the therapies or exercises to target those through the physical brain. So I would have to say, just to kind of sum that up, yeah, the number one I see making the biggest changes when a person is ready are the eye movement therapies. The second one that I'm really passionate about are what I call electroceuticals. And so electroceuticals kind of riff off the idea of, of a big part of what I do, you know, that's super unique is using the senses to strengthen and optimize the brain. And so we're just taking that a step further. So rather than just using light or sounds or smell or taste or touch or vibration, you know, we can actually use specific devices, electronic devices to target those same pathways. So we can activate the vagus nerve pathway to take a person's, you know, autonomic nervous system from fight or flight to rest, digest and repair. And we can do things related to the inner ear vestibular system where instead of just doing like, you know, head movements or spin therapy or functional movements, we can actually have these headphones that we connect to a very specific app that we can set the tone 
to target the left inner ear versus the right vestibular cochlear nerve, right? And we can do so, it. So this is almost like an entrainment scenario? Entrainment in a sense, but entrainment typically is a more kind of general approach to just kind of priming the brain. What I'm talking about mm-hmm. is going in specifically targeting the weak links of the neural networks. So entrainment is so, great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Creating an immediate response, but not necessarily creating a lasting change. Is that kind of what you would say this is eliciting with these electroceuticals? Well, it's an immediate response. And then through the process of experience-dependent neuroplasticity and long-term potentiation, when you continue that process and repeat it over time, it then becomes more permanent. That's experience-dependent neuroplasticity. And yeah, that's the basis for my work. But is it something that they can access on their own, right? Is that something that you could... If someone's coming in and being dependent on the electroceuticals, it's probably not some in a state they can access their own, right? If you're de- directly stimulating their vagus nerve, it's not something I can go, okay, I'm improving my ability to access this vagal tone, or will it? Have you seen long-term transfers of, like, hey, the more time we do this, this vagal stimulation, the better this person's overall parasympathetic tone seems to be? Yeah, that's a great question. And the way I approach it, it's kind of like, again, in stages – Based on where a person's at, what is their ability? What's their bandwidth? As an example, you know, if we use the example of vagal nerve stimulation, you know, main thing is to help turn off that overactive stress response, right? But I've had patients who are like, you know what? I'm meditating all the time. I'm doing these breathing exercises. I'm, you know, practicing stress management. But for whatever reason, I'm still just like, I'm stressed and like burning out. And so, in those situations, there's one thing where, you know, and I'm all about like empowering people to take control of their brain health. But sometimes I see this kind of fine line that people walk. It's like, okay, there's all this great information that I can do things and kind of hack things on my own. But at a certain level, then what we need are more like stronger interventions, like actual treatments to at least reset the system. So in answer to your question, though, so let's say I have a patient who they're doing all the lifestyle practices, they're doing things on their own to help, you know, activate the vagus nerve to reset the tone, but it's not moving the needle, then they probably need a stronger intervention. And so that's where these electroceuticals come into play, because we can then reset a person's nervous system for them. And then we teach them to continue that process on their own. So it's just like... You know, it's just like anything. For example, you know, I don't think the level of medication use that people are on is necessary. I think most people are being over-medicated. But that being said, there is a time and place for that, especially in more crisis situations. But along the way, we want to address the root cause for their health issues, right? What's holding them back? And then we wean them off that. Same goes for electroceuticals. And so, it's like we can use these stronger therapies that require like, you know, physician, just kind of like oversight and guidance. But along the way, I am all about teaching people then it's like, okay, during this vagal nerve stimulation session, I want you to focus on your breath, or I want you to focus on your belly. Because when you do that, you activate the insular cortex. And so at the same time, when we're activating the vagus nerve, we can combine the neural network that we want to like connect and have, for example, a person do conscious breathing, or I might have them do eye exercises, or I might do low level laser while they're doing the vagal nerve. So the the treatments then combine their effect and go deeper. But just like, you know, you bring up a great point, I don't want them reliant on anything in the long run, right? Just like learn how to eat right for their brain type, like take the foundational supplements they need, and then as needed, use these electroceuticals. But the last thing I want are people like dependent on these things long term. Well, I think you got to get someone out of that stress response, out of that fight or flight in mm-hmm. order for them to make those changes, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of people who are living in that constant, you know, massive amount of sympathetic arousal yeah. and preventing them from having the conscious thoughts and being able to have the 
you know, ability to deal with the emotional swings because yeah. they're so sympathetically oriented. That's exactly. where I see that application seeming to fit perfectly. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like a lot of the clients and patients I work with, it's not like they're not putting energy into their health. They're like passionate. They're dedicated. But it's like, man, the amount of energy I'm putting in, I'm not seeing the needle move. Sometimes what's needed is to, for that person to actually stop and then allow their body to kind of, you know, trigger the healing response. But even in those cases, because because of this, again, neuroplasticity could go either way. If a person has just been chronically stressed, either physically, chemically, mentally, or emotionally, that builds efficiency in that stress response, right? So I found that a lot of times you know, doing these more stronger interventions, which are still really gentle. I mean, the majority of patients I put through these protocols that specific ones we're talking about, they like feel so chill and relaxed. Then they have the bandwidth to start activating their prefrontal lobe and being more mindful, being more aware, being more patient, right? And they have more resources. So that's the key. It's like the person is so drained and wiped out. Sometimes, you know, creating situations where I call passive therapies, where all they need to do is show up and then we reset that for them, then they're able to get out of that ditch. But that's what I, I see a lot of people doing. It's like they put energy into it, but they're not making any gains. And so the last thing we want is to add more to a person's play. It's like, okay, let's do these things first, give you more resources, like mentally, emotionally, physically. And then that's where I see a lot of the effort they put into their diet supplements you know mindset training that's where i see it all start to fall into place and again going back to your original question like in terms of priority of the three pillars i look at all of them equally because it has to be personalized but that being said the majority of patients i work with it's when we focus on the physical brain then we allow all the other things that they've done to fall into place just like a really good meal you know so you like if you guys like indian food or persian food there's this idea where once all the ingredients just fall into place this alchemy happens and then the flavor becomes magic. It's the same thing for yeah. brain therapy or brain optimization. Something just clicks. And I find that when we focus on the physical brain and specifically take a person from a fight or flight response to one of resting, digesting, or repairing, that's when that magic happens. And what it actually looks like in the real world, as an example, I know you run these muscle camps. I actually run brain camps where I do these five and 10-day intensive where People who have been struggling with like concussion or chronic neurological symptoms, they come to the office and just like I know on your website, it's like people are able to learn, you know, a huge amount in a short period of time than they have in years. It's kind of like what happens in the brain camps. Like, for example, I had this one girl who after her concussion, she suffered from insomnia. She didn't have a good night's sleep for two years straight right? Two years, she wasn't able to sleep, like have a good deep rest after her concussion. And so after she came to the camp, part of what we did was the electroceutical therapy where it's like, hey, all you need to do this week, actually, she did a 10-day camp. I'm like, all you need to do is just show up and me and my team will take care of you. And it was like day four, she, she was in the office. I was checking in with her and her mom. She's like, I slept like fully throughout the night for the first time in two years, right? And so that's the thing. She tried a bunch of things on her own at home, but it wasn't until we like specifically identified the neural network and then got to work right. through. Tell me what that looks like. What exactly are you stimulating there and how? So let me, let me if you don't recall. mind sharing. Yeah, absolutely. Let me recall her situation. So for her, we did several things. So I don't want to go into too much personal detail with her case. Sure. But yeah, I'll just kind of speak to like in general what we do for patients. So after I identify the weakened neural network and I figure out, okay, which sensory pathway would have the biggest bang? Would it be light, sound, smell, taste, touch? Would it be activating the vagus nerve? So for her, we actually did a combination of vestibular using like these headphones that have a particular tone. And then 
in addition to that, I did very gentle rocking movements with her. And that's the thing for people who are more sensitive, who've experienced trauma, or just who are just kind of overwhelmed and stressed to begin with, less is more. So what I did was I sat her in a chair, I had her look at this dot, and she had something similar done to her before, but I pretty much moved her maybe like one degree right to left, you know, about let's say eight hertz. So really slow movements, just like a rocking movement, just like you would like a baby. Because when you do that, it triggers a neurological reflex by way of the vestibular system into the vagus nerve and causes relaxation. So while I had the electroceutical going on top of that, I actually did some vestibular rehab, like gently rocking her in the chair. That helped to calm her system down. And the other thing we did for her, we did low-level laser therapy as well as the vagal nerve stimulator where she put these little electrodes on her ear. And because the ear actually has these nerve fibers that communicate with the vagus nerve deep into the lower part of the brainstem. So that's the thing. A lot of people who have had trauma or who are just like stressed out and just like what I'm describing, when the upper part of the brainstem, which we call the midbrain, is firing and overfiring, and a lot of people have that, especially if they've ex- under a lot of stress or experienced trauma, that is about survival. Like that system is going to ramp up. And what happens then, a person becomes, you know, really sensitive to pain, light, sound. They have problems with sleep, right? Their autonomic nervous system goes into a state of fight or flight. It's the ascending reticular activating system. The midbrain is a part of that. So my point is, What we did, rather than having her meditate and take deep breaths and say everything's going to be okay because we're trying to use the frontal lobe to calm in more like embryologically and evolutionary older and primitive survival structure, no way. That's why so many people are exhausted when they try to do that consciously. Does that make sense? Of course. Because they're trying to use their frontal lobe to calm a very primitive structure that's about survival. It's not going to happen. And so what we did was I used the lower part of the brainstem, which is just as old a structure, right? But then we activated the lower part, which by way of the vagus nerve helps to put the brakes on the midbrain. So what that looked like, again, to answer your question, yeah, we just had these simple electrodes that sent gentle pulses of information through her vagus nerve into the lower parts of the brainstem. And that helped to reset and shut off that fight or flight response. Because when it comes to optimization, when it comes to healing the brain, there's four stages, right? We need to stimulate the nervous system. And so that's what we did with the electroceuticals, as well as the rocking motions and the eye exercises. Then from there, we need to then modulate the nervous system, meaning take the nervous system from a fight or flight response to activating the parasympathetic nervous system. Then the third stage is neural relaxation. And that's when I know the magic is starting to fall into place. Just like that meal that we described that's just delicious, that you have that meal, like when everything falls into place, that's when neural relaxation happens. And a person, a patient or client will describe, oh my God, I just had the deepest nap ever. Like they'll leave the office and they'll come back the next day. I'm like, well, oh, so how'd it go? They're like, when I got home, I felt like as soon as my head hit the pillow, I slept for like three hours. And then that night I slept uninterrupted the entire night. Then I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, yes. Because then I know we've entered that third stage, which is neural relaxation, which is when the nervous system starts to integrate and assimilate all the things that we've done, right? That's what I mean. That's the part where things start to really fall into place. And finally, the fourth stage is neurodifferentiation, neuroplasticity, when we start to make the longer-term changes. So interesting. Just going down this path of neuroplasticity, and, you know, I, I talk often about the you know, the myokine response of exercise and the, and the BDNF and the nerve growth factor and all these things that happen in response yeah. to exercise. How extensively mm-hmm. have you looked at that and how much do you believe it's a part of brain growth? Yeah, that is an awesome question because pretty much what we're talking about, at least in the framework that I presented at the start, is both the physical and chemical brain. Because, yeah, when you do 
physical exercise, it triggers like the BDNF response, which is it's priming the chemical brain for neuroplasticity to happen, right? And so BDNF is just crucial to optimize the synaptic connections, the actual growth and changes we want to see in the brain. But on the the flip side, at the same time, when you're doing physical therapies, and a big part of my practice, again, is using the senses, and when you're doing like physical therapies like balance training or being on a vibration plate or like functional training, all that in addition to activating the chemical processes of BDNF and you know growth hormone and things like that, we're also activating specific sensory pathways. So for example, in all your muscles and joints, you have joint mechanoreceptors and muscle spindles. What these are, they're motion detectors. And every time you move your body, that triggers action potential. It's an electrical signal that runs up your spinal cord and enters your cerebellum. And then through that, you know, activation, if it's strong enough, it could then lead to what we call cellular immediate early gene response, which is the precursor for neuroplasticity. So the more you do it, not only are you training the muscles, but as you know, it's not muscle memory, it's it's the cerebellar, basal ganglia, thalamus, frontal lobe memory that we're talking about, right? And so a big part of my practice too is using physical therapies as well as sensory-based therapies to target these neural networks. And the crazy thing, and I'm sure you've experienced this and seen this over the years, those neural networks I just described, the cerebellum, basal ganglia, thalamus, and frontal lobe, those are the neural networks that are dedicated to movement, to reaction time, to coordination, to physical, like our physical existence, right? But guess what? Those same neural networks, as they develop and create more like bandwidth and real estate in those neurons and neuronal pools through movement and exercise training, you then create the real estate for the higher functions, such as like higher thought and creativity and insight, right? And the ability to focus and very simple tasks like being able to like follow through on your actions or be able to plan your day or your week or have like three-year, five-year goals. That's all subserved by the same neural networks. And so, you know, when we do physical therapies, you know, and when we do physical training, like we're also – priming the brain for the ability to have like the mindset control, the focus, the dedication needed to really take our lives to the next level. And it's such an interesting field because so many people approach it from the top down, meaning like, okay, if you're not able to focus and you're not able to plan your life, let's just sit down and have you do that, right? And we can just take like a child who has ADD as an example. If you're not able to sit down and focus, let's just have you, let's discipline you to the point where you just have to sit in your chair. That's not going to work. But guess what the research shows? When they have more playtime and recess, all those problems start to fall to the wayside because we're activating those neural networks that then lay the foundation for the higher centers. Brilliant, man. There's all the stuff in your book. This is really good information. Like, I don't know if this, you know, if the typical listener is going to get all this stuff and grasp all these concepts that you're giving us, but is this most of the stuff in the book or is your book really focused on, you know, your immediate interventions to, you know, save your brain? Yeah, great question. So my book really is it's written for a person who struggled with a concussion and, you know, even months or years after the head injury, just like I had. And so there's a six-week plan in there that helps them walk through at least the initial foundational actions that they can take to take control of their brain. So that being said, some of the principles and ideas that I just spoke to are in the book. But again, just like you had said, it's more specific to a person who has concussion. But that being said, the actual actions, the practical actions in there can help anyone, anyone who has like brain fog or trouble with concentration and focus, you know, because at the end of the day, we can label someone with post-concussion syndrome, or we can label someone ADD, but I'm not interested in labels. I'm interested in the system's biology, the root cause underneath that. And so the six-week plan that I kind of lay out in the book is kind of like what you had asked me, what's like the top three movers? These are like the top actions that I've seen over the years that people can take action on 
on their own. And then if they're still, you know, doing better, but not a hundred percent, then like higher interventions are needed. But man, I love it. Like I get messages from people all the time who've read my book, like on Facebook or Amazon. They're just like, wow, I tried this one thing. And ever since then, I've had so much energy. And I'm feeling so much better. And that just means the world to me. So yeah, a lot of, you know, a lot of the ideas that we're talking about here, these are things that I've kind of you know, been like mulling on for many years, both like in my head intellectually, but also experientially healing my own brain and also helping people with trauma or, you know, take their brains to the next level or people who have healthy brains to take them and get them to that A level, right? That high performance that you're speaking to. Yeah, exactly. So I think a lot of people, at least maybe this is just my worldview is a lot of people uh, are struggling. And again, maybe not the right choice of words, but are uh, living with emotional regulation issues. Maybe they're Mm -hmm. having problems with anxiety and fear and lack of self-belief. Do you have any uh, interventions or uh, recommended resources for people who are living with that as a foundational approach to beginning your three pillars? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's a awesome question because the way I approach it is this. I always start with the first two pillars, the physical and the chemical. Like if a person has experienced emotional traumas in their past or they're just really stressed out, maybe they haven't experienced emotional trauma like a big one, but just chronic stress over time. I find again, especially if it's been the stress has been going on for so long, it's really hard for them to start there. And that was actually my experience, honestly. Like it won't in our conversation prior to, you know, before we got on record here, like on the podcast, I told you some of the symptoms that I struggled with after my concussion was like anger management issues and like brain fog and like really like obsessive worry and because I'd never suffered from anything like that. And then I realized that it wasn't rooted in the psychology. It was because I grew up in a really you know, loving family. I didn't experience any serious emotional traumas in my life. So I was like, what's going on? So then I realized it was because of the concussion, right? And so I got to work and I really dialed in and changed my diet, focused on the chemical brain. I did these exercises, used these electroceuticals, changed my physical brain. Then I had more of the bandwidth to handle some of the emotional issues that I had. I mean, growing up, honestly, to be totally, you know, straightforward, I had a lot of self-esteem issues. It wasn't like I had a massive trauma when I was young, but I had self-esteem issues that I think I always had, but I never had, again, the bandwidth to be able to deal with them. And it wasn't until I did things to stabilize my physical brain, my chemical brain, then from there, I had the bandwidth to be like, to have more mindfulness to, you know, address these issues. But for people out there, you know, who are struggling with these things, I do recommend starting, like, get the physical stuff in check, right? Physical, chemical. Then you'll have more of the bandwidth to face the demons, so to speak, the darkness, right? And and it's part of the healing journey, honestly. I think because of what I've been through, like, I came out of it a much more developed human being. You know, it wasn't pleasant by any means. But I think if I had just started in the emotional realm, it would have been too much for me. But that being said, once things have, you know, if you're out there listening and you've stabilized the physical stuff, the chemical stuff, and you're still struggling, yeah, there's a lot of practices out there. I like the, you know, just mindfulness practice. A lot of what I do these days, like my mindset practices is like, because I used to have these really negative self-defeating thoughts and I still do. But now it's like when it comes up, pops into my head, then I'm kind of like, oh, that's interesting. (laughs) Where in the past, I would used to just get carried away with it. Like it was reality and the truth, right? You know, so it's like, man, I love that you give that perspective. That's great. Yeah, but that's the thing. When I was in the midst of it all, when my brain was inflamed, when I was suffering from a concussion I didn't even realize I had, I didn't have the bandwidth to do that. But once I cleared the static, then it's just like, oh, like, that's interesting. You know, and I'll like, I'll question it's like, oh, really? (laughs) You know, I'll I'll like challenge it. It's like, really? Like, I can't do this. I'm not good enough to do it. Like, why? And so it's like I put the onus on those self-defeating thoughts to prove them to me 
<laughs> and so it's just kind of like, oh, then it just kind of goes away, you know. Not always, you know, so I'm not perfect. It's a process and it's definitely, you know, it's been a struggle my entire life. But I think because the physical, the chemical was set into place and then it's just like I had the bandwidth. Then it's like through my meditative practices, just clearing my mind. So then I can even become aware of those thoughts. Because before I think it was like those thoughts would be there, but I wouldn't be aware of them. I would just feel crappy. I would feel bad about myself or I'd feel depressed or unmotivated. And I didn't know why, you know? And part of it was, again, like I had inflammation from gut dysfunction and food sensitivities. I had neural network issues. But at the same time, I had these thoughts running in the background that I wasn't even aware of. I love that you say that because so many people are going after these emotional issues, this emotional trauma and not paying attention to the physical brain, not paying attention to the chemical brain. Yeah. And like yourself, I, again, I'm not an expert as you are, but I strongly believe that just kind of taking control of the things that you can control mm -hmm. and giving yourself the bandwidth, giving yourself the energy, giving yourself mm. the you know positive hormonal cascade or neurochemical cascade. Yeah then gives you the power to address and, and approach those emotions that could be maybe a little more fearful, right? Mm -hmm. This is a little, little bit more traumatic to approach emotional issues for people. So yeah. I love that because, you know, you're preaching to the choir, man. I'm the guy telling everybody like, hey, you know, get off your butt, exercise, move <laughs> 30 days. And, and that's what's going to cause the emotional changes because then you're empowering yourself, exactly. right? You're creating that self-belief. And I think most people don't realize that. And, and even many therapists are not advocating it that way, right? It's yeah. like, hey, you need this medication, you need this drug, you need this therapy. Mm -hmm. But again, it's this idea of, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? When you're a nutritionist, everybody mm -hmm. needs to eat less food. When you're a therapist, maybe everyone needs cognitive health. But, um, you know, the physical body is just, it just runs the show, man. Like if, if you can create that positive hormonal neurochemical cascade, you can really change everything. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I truly believe in that. And, you know, I truly believe in the fact that our bodies and our nervous systems have a wisdom. And when we like remove the static and we do the foundational things that humans are supposed to do, like just like you said, move and breathe and connect and eat healthy and have purpose and meaning, the other things start to just fall in place or at least then there's more clarity as to what the next step will be in terms of addressing those things. Very cool, man. So much valuable information within that. Um, you know, I love to get into just a little bit around you know, if you have some supplements, if you have some things like chemically that you're suggesting people do, if it's, you know, neurotropics, if it's, you know, brain nutrients, if it's, uh, you know, whatever those may be, uh, mitochondrial support, what are your kind of interventional approaches with that? Yeah, great. Again, just the way I approach things, because everything needs to be personalized, it really depends on what their unique genetic and neurological needs are. You know, a lot of what I do is also look at single nucleotide polymorphisms. We can look at slight genetic variations that we can support through diet, supplements, and lifestyle. But that being said, one way I can approach it is I can speak to what I do, like what my rituals are. So I definitely, I mean, as a baseline, I eat really healthy in terms of gluten-free and dairy-free, you know, organic foods. But in terms of supplements, I like to fill in the potholes, so to speak, that I like to call them with my patients. And so I'll take like essential fatty acid supplements. Sometimes I high dose DHA versus EPA. Sometimes I'll take a more broad spectrum. So I kind of like flip in between. You know, I actually have a supplement I take that's both omega-3 and some of the healthy omega-6 and omega-9s. But a lot of the time I'll stick to more like a DHA EPA blend which has more DHA, about a three to two ratio. And so that's one thing I foundationally do. In addition to that, I do take activated forms of B vitamins, specifically like folate, because I do know that I have issues with methylation and my homocysteine tends to trend upwards if I don't. But then on top of that, I make sure that I eat a lot of leafy greens and foods rich in folate. So, but activated B vitamins I take. In terms of like the brain-gut or the gut-brain connection, I also take probiotics. And so I like to switch those up as well, kind of keep things interesting for my microbiome because it keeps – I know they – I mean, I really believe they have an intelligence as well, like our <laughs> microbiome, right? So I, I don't want to make them bored. So I'll switch between like, 
you know, certain high dose of maybe the lactobacillus and the bifidobacterium, or I'll just do like a bifido strain, or then I'll do like a Cadillac, which has like 12 different probiotics. In addition to that, I do take vitamin D, I take a liposomal form, but I try to be outside as much as possible because I just feel wonderful when I have like a dark, deep tan. That's just my genetics. So those are some of the foundational ones. But then the more, you know, more advanced, I guess you can say is astaxanthine. I like taking that because I think it's great for mitochondria to support the nerf 2 pathway to protect against neuroinflammation. And honestly, I think it's really important when I go out in the sun a lot because the polyphenols in the astaxanthine protect my skin against damage. So that's one I take quite often as well. Um, I do take adaptogenic herbs as needed, especially, you know, as I'm going through these spurts of these brain camps and like working on other projects. It's like I have a tendency to just go and I have this focus and I could go for hours. (laughs) So in order for me to not burn out, I typically take like adaptogenic herbs. For me, like ginseng and rhodiola is really good ones that I like to take as well as the eleuthero root as well. So those are some foundational ones. I also take curcumin and resveratrol. So like I mentioned before, like the polyphenols, but I enjoy a glass of red wine as well as eat a lot of my wife's and my mother-in-law's Persian food, which has saffron and turmeric, which are just wonderful polyphenols, chock full of stuff. And let's see here. I went into a lot of, uh, yeah, the kind of like the core supplements. That's kind of like a foundation approach I like to take. And then as things come up, you know, I also take sometimes supplements. There's a whole coffee extract supplement that I take because that's been shown to elevate levels of BDNF. So those are times when I'm doing more, not so much like working, but if I'm creating or I'm learning something so I can generate the BDF necessary to create the neuroplasticity. So I'll take something like that that has ginkgo in it, taking like phosphatidylserine, phosphatidylcholine, those phospholipids, which are really important for the neuronal cell membranes. Those I don't take as often, but I'll kind of throw them in when I start to do more like learning and growth. You know, a big part of what I like to do, not only do I love teaching, but I love learning. It just keeps me just going. So whenever I'm like in a deep learning phase, I've kind of chunked out my yearly calendars where it's like, okay, here's work phase, here's learning, here's rejuvenation, here's connection, you know. And so especially when I'm going in the learning phases, I tend to up those supplements that I just mentioned. Very cool, man. What's your favorite way to get out of sympathetic arousal? So if you kind of just have that awareness of like, oh man, I'm a little bit overamped. Do you have a an immediate interventional strategy where you go, this is how I'm going to get myself out in, you know, 10 seconds or less or, or 60 seconds or less or, or whatever it may be? Yeah. So I talk about this in my book, but there's this idea of taking mini breaks because when we go throughout the day and we're just like building like toxicity and stress and we're not like giving our nervous systems a break, that can lead to overwhelm and burnout. And so a big part of what I do is I'll literally just like lie down. The one way of approaching is I just lie down. It's not like I'm going to take a nap, but I set my timer for like 10 minutes in case I do fall asleep. But I'll just lie down if I'm outside, particularly, um, and it's nice out, I'll lie down in a patch of grass. I just close my eyes and I do this eyeball massage where I don't actually use my hands for the first step of it. I actually just close my eyes pretty tight until the point where I feel a little soreness in my eyeballs. Not too much, but a little soreness. It's using your eyelids to kind of massage your eyeballs because there's a reflex from the, you know, the cranial nerve that is related to your eye movements as well as eye control and sensory pathway from the eyes to the vagus nerve. So this actually triggers, uh, it activates a vagal nerve response. So this little eyeball massage, I'll just kind of close my eyes really tight and I might, you know, everyone's different, but if you close your eyes right now, you can kind of move your eyes and, you know, up and to the left, up and to the right or straight up or straight down, you know, in all different directions and hold it there for a second. I wouldn't go too fast, especially if you have concussion or chronic migraines or things like that, but just doing that briefly and holding it for like a pause maybe resetting back to neutral right now. And then you might find in one of the directions or several, your eye muscles are kind of sore. 
And so that's the position that I'll hold my eyes in while I'm lying down with my eyes closed. And I'll just take a few deep breaths as I go through that. And then the second step of that is once I've done that, typically what will happen is, and a lot of you who might be doing this now or you know, practice doing it, you might notice that you start to yawn. Or you might notice that you're, you yawn and then you're, have you ever like yawned and your eyes actually tear? Yep. You know, like some people yawn and they don't really, it's just like a half yawn. It's not a full deep parasympathetic yawn. But I find a lot of times when I do that, it triggers a deep parasympathetic response that my eyes also, I yawn and I have this deep like tearing response because like I've been on like go mode for so long, you know, it's like it triggers this deep neuromodulation and neurorelaxation response. If that doesn't happen, that's okay. Then step two, what I do is with my eyes closed, I'll then gently massage my eyeballs and I'll gently use, you know, the palms of my hands to just gently push in, not, again, not too hard, just directly in without having to move your eyes. And so I'm just doing that right now as we speak and I just take a few deep breaths again. So we're actually, we're activating this response called spatial summation where we're activating the vagus nerve through two different pathways, through the diaphragmatic pathway, through the deep breathing. And at the same time, when you push on your eyeball, you're also activating. So it's even deeper vagal nerve response. And so I'll just do that for a few seconds. And I find a lot of the time just doing that, like, again, I set my alarm for 10 minutes because sometimes I fall asleep after that. But sometimes just doing that for like 30 seconds, one minute, you know, three minutes, it's just like this reset. And I just then go about my day. So that's one way I approach it. So that's one thing that I've learned over the years, just understanding neurology and healing my own brain, a really powerful way to just reset the nervous system. Man, I love that. And I've actually heard one other doctor talk about that in the past. And I, and I really had never seen it quantified um, like, hey, this is actually stimulating the vagus nerve, but he just had this subjective experience around like, hey, when I do this type of thing, you know, whether it be during my meditation or around my meditation, I seem to get this significantly amplified parasympathetic response of calming and soothing and, yeah. and for better. But, you know, it seems like you guys are both catching on to the same thing. There's got to be something there. Yeah, it's a monosynaptic reflex in the brainstem from the eyeball muscles to the vagus nerve, it just triggers that response. You can actually look it up. It's called the oculocardiac reflex. Very, very cool. What's your favorite resource if someone wants to look up uh, understanding the autonomic nervous system at a deeper level? Oh, wow. That's a great question. So Robert Sapolsky, he wrote a lot about like the HPA axis. So his books, yeah, he's like an expert in the world of like stress and things like that. It's a bit different though. Like what I'm describing is a bit more kind of like a neural network approach to modulating the autonomic nervous system. Honestly, I don't know of one single book that does that. I haven't seen one. A lot of what I'm describing to you, because like I said, I, you know, at the start of our conversation, I did a deep dive in a postdoc in clinical neurology, and I ended up teaching for this institute. So a lot of what I've kind of like described here are things that I've kind of experientially discovered myself and then also kind of through the research of all that so yeah i mean but robert sapolsky's work he's awesome which like, book like why jeepers don't have ulcers yeah that's just a classic right looking at that but again it doesn't go so much into like the neural network approach it speaks more to kind of like the neural endocrine junction which is different you know it's like um, what i'm describing is more kind of like these ways of hacking the nervous system um, yeah. So anyways, uh, when I write that book, I'll let you know, because <laughs> right I think it's, there's a huge need. Yeah. There's a huge need for that. Just practical actions that people can take like little exercises to, you know, stimulate the vagus nerve and trigger responses. But yeah, three other ways of doing, it. you might've heard already like gargling could be a good way or humming or chanting mm -hmm. is a powerful way of activating the vagus nerve belly massages because that activates the vagus nerve, the stretch fibers and the vagus nerve. So belly massage is a really great way of doing that. And then what I talk about in my book as well is like cold splashes to the face is a great way of triggering, believe it or not, a parasympathetic response once your nervous system calms from that initial rush. Man, 
so much incredible information and I want everyone to go out and get your book and where can they find more from you, Dr. Chu? So my book's called Brain Save and you can actually get it on Amazon and to learn more about me and my practice, you can check out brainsave.com. Yeah, you're doing great stuff. And I know your primary demographic to this point has been concussion, but I think you have so much more to offer the world to everyone who just wants to optimize their life and see the implications that your brain can have on, you know, literally all it has on everything, right? Your, your control centers, the master of everything. So all this information has been just incredibly, incredibly valuable. So thank you so much for all your time and your wisdom. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks again for inviting me. It's been such a pleasure. All right, ladies and gents, that's a wrap with Dr. Chu. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. If you did, share it with one person right now that you know will love it. Don't forget to head over to iTunes, head over to Instagram. You can head over to muscleintelligence.com slash podcasts and get all the show notes for this podcast and every other podcast and also direct links to all of our sponsors in case you forget what the codes are. It's all listed right there. I'm actually in the process of creating one document so you guys can go to the website and obviously get access to all of the discount codes you're entitled to for being a listener and a loyal follower of the show. So thank you so much. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your wisdom. We've been getting incredible feedback. We've been getting incredible interaction with the podcast, both on Instagram, on iTunes, and just personal emails. Guys, thank you so much. Head over to butcherbox.com. Use the code MI40, $20 off your first order. And they're hooking you up with free meat. If you make the purchase now, go do it because it doesn't last forever. Have a great day. Live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. And don't forget to pick up Dr. Chu's new book, Brain Save. Awesome. Cheers, guys. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.